three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Geeks Can't, the home of RPG goodness and general tomfoolery. My name is Zach, and uh, I have so, so many hosts joining me uh, this morning. Uh, we're here at Lake Geneva for GaryCon, uh, and we're with the World of Game Design crew, running a whole bunch of events, um, doing a bunch of panels, meeting a lot of great people. Um, and today we're doing this little fireside chat sort of a panel. Like, literally. Literally, literally in front of a fireplace. <laughs> yeah, like Almost in the fire. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, so we're just getting around the, the topic of this is the future of D&D. We actually submitted this back in October as a seminar, right? And we're like, oh, we'll talk about how, you know, 5e is going to how what is the what is the life of 5e going to look like when we're diving into a new edition and what is what does that look like for creators and what is sixth edition going to look like and all that and i thought oh, that'll be a good topic for for 2024 and then of course all the ogl stuff happened and i'm like okay well this may be changed completely but we'll find out um so it's just been interesting but anyhow so troy thanks for uh thanks for being on the show of course yeah. i have to represent my uh my city of Fort Wayne. There you go. Mayor of Fort Wayne, absolutely. 100%. John, thanks for being on the show. Degna es paranath, my friends. Perfect if Troy's not going to yodel, I've got to do something. <laughs> so. With the Dragonlance crap on. <laughs> Every chance I get, brother. Yeah. And then we've got uh, uh, Thomas Valley from Adventures League and from all sorts of awesome stuff. Sure. Uh, you know, I'm here just because you guys used to have a Thomas V on your team. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I that, that's, that's why you have me around. That's right. That's right. Um, Ed Stark, thanks for being on. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, it's good to be asked. Yes. Uh, you're talking about the future of D&D, and having been, you know, technically out of uh, tabletop for a little while, you know, I certainly keep my hand in. I can probably speak to some of the past trends that may uh, mm. presage new uh, new trends in the future. Absolutely. Thanks, Ed. And then we've got uh, Alphineas or Kim from Gooey uh, Cube. Yes, yeah. it is I. Yes, it is I, Alphineas. Yes, but my real name's Kim, but as I've told you before, you know, Alphineas is much more fun. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, I am here. I do not know why I am here, but I am here. I think there was booze promised, and I haven't had a, a sip yet, so I'm just trying to understand. What time is it, by the way? <laughs> it's 5 o'clock somewhere, right? Yeah, that's- ...or sitting around the room is, is an honor to be here, and... Uh, and uh, speaking the truth, um, uh, I'm really pleased at some of the things that progressed in the gaming community and what happened in terms of changing um, a really significant thing. Um, and I, I'm, you know, I'm a marketing guy. That's my background. And if you want me to talk about that stuff, I'll be willing to talk about that or whatever you want. However, so, whatever. But it's great yeah. to be here. Great to be here. Thanks, Glad Ken. to have you. Yeah, and then we got uh, Andrew Bashinsky. Thanks for hopping on and, and being around. Yes, hi. I do fifth edition writing now and then, and uh, other st- other things for Adventures League and places like Ghostfire and other things. And you're the guest of honor, or a guest of honor here so at the show. That, I, I, I want to pick your brain about I, how that I was invited here. I somehow swindled uh, that man Thomas Valley <laughs> into getting me over here, and uh, yeah, so now I'm here. Well, we're all glad you're here. <laughs> You are award-winning Andrew Bischofsky. That's right. Oh, yeah, the, the one time. Yeah, the one, one time. time. <laughs> That's all it takes. <laughs> I've won every fifth edition best DM contest ever. Ever. It's true. Ever. <laughs> and then Eric and Anna and, and Jeff and everybody else, thanks for um, your showing up and being a part of it. Yeah. It means a lot that you would uh, take the time. Cool. Awesome. So let's just dive in. Um, so, Troy, I know you kind of you kind of – were the 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 core core idea guy behind this panel? Where do you where do you think we should start with this whole discussion? Well, I like the idea of what of what Ed said about he can kind of look to the past and what it was, and maybe kind of look to what had just happened with the OGL and look what what would you like to see come out of all of this as far as a sixth edition or is it even necessary to have a sixth edition at this point? Um, so I feel that it's necessary to have a new edition of a game as popular as D&D every few years. You know, I, I wouldn't, I would hate to put an exact number on it, but if I, if somebody hold my feet to the fire, I'd probably say about every five years or so. Hmm. Uh, the reason being is every edition of D&D, for example, is somebody's favorite edition. And every edition of D&D is somebody's least favorite edition. And part of the reason for that is 
Um, the designers of each edition, and I've worked on several uh, in one way or another, uh, are trying to solve problems that the current generation of players or the hopeful generation of players uh, sees with the game. Uh, I worked, you know, I was a creative director for third edition and 3.5, and we went with a very mechanical focused uh, back to the dungeon approach. That was actually kind of one of our taglines was back to the dungeon. And it became a game uh, with a lot of numbers, a lot of balancing. You couldn't create a monster uh, in D&D without using a spreadsheet, you know, and stuff like that. But at the time, that was what a lot of our audience wanted. It helped reacquire a lot of old players. It helped introduce a lot of new players to the game. We were able to sort of reintegrate the idea of miniatures into the game because if you look at even first and second edition, even though D&D was based off of a, uh, a minis game, there wasn't a lot of tactical movement and stuff. However, uh, things that this edition did less well was uh, acquire some brand new players and things like that. So other editions of the game, particularly I think 5th edition, are built around the idea of acquiring new players, getting them into the hobby, making the game accessible. So you're always going to have trade-offs which is why I think, you know, you have to retool every few years because your generations change. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's just like, uh, I, I, I'm not necessarily a big fan of constantly re-releasing movies or, 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 or doing, you know, new versions of, of TV shows or something like that. But sometimes you have a, a good message that just needs to be retooled for a new audience. And I think in a lot of ways, D&D is that way. And, and the great thing about it is, as we used to say, the gaming police aren't going to show up at your door, grab your current edition of the game, and burn it, <laughs> and uh, make you buy the new edition. So if you like the edition you're playing, there's nothing stopping you from continuing to play it. Right on. Uh, it so is, it's interesting to me, though, the uh, the frustration that you have with, with players of existing editions. They get really frustrated that their edition is no longer being supported. Have you right. seen the internet? I'm with you. I've seen that. No, that wasn't an accusation. Have they seen the internet? Have they seen? Thank you. That it is. It, that's and that's exactly my point. Right. I think that there's the, the at one point or another, the the folks that are the, that are the most passionate about the edition that is departing, uh, that they become the the key holders to the edition from that point <clears> moving forward, especially with the advent of OGL. Yeah. Right? When you look at like, um, I mean. Fourth edition D and D essentially created Pathfinder. Yes. I mean that's a gross oversimplification, but you know the the people in charge of Pathfinder liked the direction D and D was headed there, and they yes. made their changes and everything. But they basically like that. And what's really kind of funny is then they come out with Pathfinder Second Edition, and people are like, well, "Wait a minute!" Right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 One thing that I remember. Um, I think Mike Merle said it several years ago. Somebody asked him what a sixth edition would look like or why would there ever be a sixth edition? And he said it was pre-pandemic. Uh, and he said, well, I think a sixth edition would really be made for the online gaming community because I really see that that's where a lot of the games are going to go. And I think there's a, a streamlined, cleaner version that, that players don't have can use a book that's online and that's a little bit simpler and it's also good for folks that maybe don't even have a book and it's something that like I share. And I was like, that's a really smart, like that's a route that I could see for for a, the next edition and what, like you're saying, it's something that maybe the next crowd could be because... Like you're saying, it's solving another problem for a new audience. Right. You know? Okay, having said that, solving a, a new problem for a new generation of players, from what we've seen of the playtest material that has come out for what we're going to call 6th edition, is it solving that problem? Is it because of, of the whole, oh, it's backwards compatible, it's, you know, you can still play your old stuff with it, is it going to be enough of a change from what we currently have with 5e to garner all the hullabaloo that has been behind it, or is it only a half step? So, so do they so, need to go farther? So, Troy, if you think about, um, in my mind, right, in my mind, honestly, because the, the this problem that they were kind of solving, right, was twofold, right? There were there's a lot of the old the old folks like me, right? Who are crunchy? We like a little more crunchy system. You know, five E is wonderful because it did do exactly what was just said. Brought a lot of people to the game that had never played before, made it much more accessible, approachable, and all that stuff. But then folks like us 
who like a little more challenge, a little more interest, a little more crunchiness and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of, uh, you know, it's a little vanilla, right? I think they should have done advanced Dungeons and Dragons again is what I think they should have done. Mm-hmm. And they, and they should have come out with that. And then they could have kept 5e as the approachable system and, and migrated a huge portion of their people to that, which would have taken care of that portion. The online thing is a whole different thing. I don't think creating World of Warcraft in 2023 or 2024 or 2025 is a really good idea given that World of Warcraft was created in 2003. That's a really, <laughs> inter- a really interesting angle to take on it, though. What about parallel versions of D&D that are being actively supported? You've got like a, an online D&D, you've got advanced D&D, and then you've got 5e D&D, right? I think it, it's gonna it's tough to support one, right? Uh, but and have any like a clarity and focus in it, and then you kind of like you're probably going to see some bleed between the two, and you may actually lose some of your players to one versus the other. Maybe some frustration and some confusion that come from it. But that is fascinating, right? <clears throat> to me, it's like look, we're going to strip down five E for you. We're going to make it really simple because that sounds to me like that this this generation of players they they do want they we hear less crunch, more narrative, more social more interaction, more exploration. So let's make it easy for them to do that online without a lot of button pushing and a lot of well, a lot of ton of rolling. And then that'll be like the the 4E equivalent, I guess, whenever they went to, into the Essentials uh, essentials line. It's we, They still supported 4E softly towards the end of the life cycle, but they still had this other thing that was over here that really stripped down to the bare bones uh, and to where you didn't have to have a character generator in order to play the, to right. play the game. Well, remember in the, in the, in the, uh, and I'll just say this quick and then I'll shut up, but in the original, um, in the original concepts, right, as you think about it, you always have to remember one last thing, which is critically important. Mm. Because in a meeting like this where a bunch of strategists are sitting around in product development, okay, they're all sitting around, they're talking about product development. There's the dreamers and the believers. Mm. One of them is sitting right over there, right? There's a dreamer and a believer, yeah. right? And they're talking about how cool it's going to be and blah, blah, blah. And then over in the corner, there's this other person who says, yeah, but if we produce just one book that's advanced Dungeons & Dragons, right? We're not going to make as much money as if we produce four new books that's D&D new, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have to remember always in that tug and pull, there's the creators. Most of us are that, right? And then there's the money makers, right? And so that's that tug and pull. So I think there's a qualification missing from this discussion. And that is that first edition through fourth edition was largely designed and created by designers and creatives and and business people who were all in a room pretty much separated from the audience um, except for their anecdotal experiences for their personal games or their their personal experiences with the public but largely that creation process was separated from the public fifth edition um, it was a completely different animal and that's because they had a large and open beta test with the public and the public was granted the opportunity to feedback if you were part of the D&D Next playtest, you may remember when they came out, uh, the first few versions, the PDFs that you had to download and play, where it was still, you know, my, my character gets a plus five on his attack roll, and then I've got a minus two because of this, and then I'm doing 15 types of math, and I come down, and it was very 3.5-y, very crunchy. Um, and then the very next week, uh, the DMs that were running the playtest had to get used to the advantage system. Mm-hmm. And suddenly this is a completely new mechanic we all have to get used to because the feedback from the prior week's playtest was, no, we need something different. Let's come up with a new idea. Um, and so that's because, and so now fifth edition has this, in my opinion, this much larger following, a, a great selling product. And that's because we have touched on what the public actually wants. The the fun and very uh, arcane aspect of first edition is that it was written by uh, a former insurance salesman. So you've got a lot of accurate, accurate uh, very, a lot of these tables that are you know very archaic and and, and deep, and it's because he wants to basically figure out when you're going to die at age eighty two, so he can, <laughs> what kind of life insurance to sell you, right? And and. So, yes. Well, so, uh, to me, it's interesting to see that there are two aspects, I think, that the environment now is different from previous editions. One is that the hobby is now so widespread and big in numbers mm. that it's harder for one game to satisfy a large part of the market. So mm-hmm. you cannot 
a game has to niche itself. Like 5e has been a perfect entry drug. It's brought in a huge new generation of gamers who never played before. So you can kind of, you can either gear that, but that also means that you open up the flank of, of for seasoned players who've been around for a decade or two and you want to experiment in various different directions. So the role-playing game scene, it's hard for D&D to capture everything like they used to. I think that's a, one aspect. So they have to kind of pick and choose. Do they want an advanced for the players that played for 20 years or, or and then have a basic one and stuff? So I think that's one new thing. And one other thing is that I think also previous editions have been about the rules changes. I think this one will be equally important how it will be published. Digital publishing, we have the OGL debate and, and licensing and stuff like that. I think that will be a much bigger aspect compared to the maybe even outshine what changes to feeds or, or stuff like that. Meaning, how will it be published? What can we do with it? What can creators do? I think those aspects will be much bigger issues in this edition compared to earlier editions. How it will be published and how it will probably be played. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So one, one of the things that um, and several of you have already kind of alluded to, you know, different creators back in when, you know, D&D, different editions uh, and different supplements, different rule systems and everything. But one of the things that, 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 that I guess I didn't realize at the time back in the 80s and 90s when different campaign box sets were coming out and different modules and all the different rule sets and everything, like TSR was pushing out a lot of different stuff. And, and, and they, they were expanding their product line. But with, you know, some of these new books that have come out, Slaying the Dragon by Ben Riggs, um, you know, the Game Wizards, John Peterson, like a lot of their financial costs and kind of missteps that happened is that they were actually putting out so much breadth, you know, so many different products yeah. that their, their consumers were becoming kind of segmented. Like you had certain people that were like diehard Forgotten Realms. You had certain people that were like all, you know, all in on Birthright. You had other people that were, you know, and so when when they were, so you had your, your purists that were AD&D, but then they wouldn't buy anything else, you know, and then you, of course you did have some people that were like, you know, they, they bought everything, but, 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 but of course, <laughs> doing is you were, you were <laughs> dividing your population. So I think that one thing that I've seen that 5e has done is they've gone back to just getting rid of AD&D, the advanced, getting rid of, you know, basic expert, you know, all the, going back to just a, a simple brand, Dungeons and Dragons, going back to just you know, solid hardback books that were kind of campaign settings that you could just kind of simply drop in, but getting away from box sets that, you know, kind of got crushed and everything like that. So more durable settings. Like, I think that, I think they really put a lot into the marketing aspect of it. And, um, and so well, you, you could kind of pick and choose, you know, which ones you want, but it all stayed a very mainstream D&D. Well, &D. You even see that, right? You see that with Fizban's Treasury of Dragons and Morden Kanan's Monsters of the Multiverse right. where it's like, yeah, 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 there are all these other worlds out there that they pretty much all behave the same, right? Like, don't right. get so, uh, don't get so boogered up in, like, this is Dragonlance, this is Forgotten Realms or all that other stuff. Yeah, Fizban, yeah, he's he's the same all the way across the board, right? But it's it's like, like it's all kind of still one big world. You're yeah. just playing in different elements of it. I think you're going to see various people. You're going to see various schools of thought and feelings on it too, right? Some some yeah. folks like like I like keeping my chocolate and my peanut butter separate, you know. Right. So, but some people like to have it mashed together. Where Takesis is not the dra is not uh, Tiamat and things like that. But otherwise, for these new players that are coming in, it does make sense why they would do that. So they don't segment their market segment. Right. So their anyway, players. I just my my point was I think they've learned from that mistake yeah. that happened yeah. in, in the nineties when TSR crumbled and, and now they're trying to do it better. Yeah. Yeah. In terms yeah. Of yeah. And like this is a great topic and the, going back to Kim's sort of point of having, well do we have an advanced version and a basic version and this idea of splintering the player base because the strategy in fifth edition and again I'm I'm not a wizard's a boy, I don't know the strategy, but the strategy seems to be that for people who want extra stuff, up until a couple of months ago, we would have thought that the strategy is, well, we'll just let the third party folks make that. If somebody wants advanced 5e, somebody will make it, and somebody did. Mm -hmm. You know, they, 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 there is an actual yeah. advanced 5e, which by all accounts I hear is great, and I, 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 I
the danger is going forward is what happens when you do splinter that player base. We've seen it as a kind of a microcosm, and those of you who don't play Adventures League might not know this, but for for the first few years of Adventures League, it was all set in the Forgotten Realms. It was all Forgotten Realms, and if another book came out, it's like, well, you can't play it if you play Adventures League. And all the players were like, oh my god, but let us play other campaigns, let us play another settings. Like, all the players wanted that. Mm-hmm. And then they've added that to Adventures League, so now all the settings that come out, there's a campaign. But now that you go to a con, the players got what they wanted, but now you go to a con before everybody was coming for the same thing, and everybody was part of the one community, and everybody played the same adventure here at Gary Con and talked about it, and there was a communal feeling to it. Whereas now, once person is coming to play Ravenloft, somebody's coming to play Dragonland, somebody's coming to play Forgotten Realms, and if they sit at the same table, they get told, you're at the wrong table, you don't have the right character, and now you're splintering. So we saw it kind of a, like, that's kind of a micro example of what can potentially happen with the game as a whole. And I wonder if that's something that they're keeping in mind, and that, and that's why we see the name maybe one D and D, and that they're saying, "Hey, we don't want to splinter the player base." Uh, this has been a concern since the development of third edition. And it's interesting, Thomas, because your memory of the playtesting of third edition is very different from mine. <laughs> third edition. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, well, you were saying that that it did wasn't open to like a large audience, and it's like that's just not true. Okay. It's a question of scale. Yes. Uh, D&D 5th uh, edition has reached a lot more people and also has electronic forms. It's funny because the conversation we're just having, um, I had, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago uh, with people on staff at Wizards and TSR and everything um, with just a few different nouns. Uh, and obviously we didn't have as much digital presence or anything like that. And when we were doing third edition, we couldn't even get a character generator built, which was frustrating. Uh, a whole lot of with that. But it was in but, the, it was on a CV. Yeah, not how it worked, but that was about the uh, only yeah, one. I still have that. As a, develop, as a developer, <laughs> I understand. Uh, one of the things is, yeah, I mean, I, I guarantee you that ever since the days of the you know campaign setting every year, a big concern of any holder of D&D has been splintering the audience. It's also been about uh, selling stuff to the audience. Typically, an old TSR product only sold to about one out of every six audience members. You know who those people were? Dungeon Masters. Dungeon Masters, exactly. Mm -hmm. Because they're the only ones who need it. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was a big reason why um, there was a big push in 3rd edition to get miniatures back into the game. I mean, obviously we wanted it because we thought it was a fun play talk style too, but Everybody might buy miniatures, especially pre-painted plastic miniatures, mm-hmm. and of course, and, and, and that was very successful. That same model had to change and evolve, obviously, but it was also uh, one of the reasons why we released third edition products we did. We did a lot of what we called splat books, you know, the, the prestige classes, the feats, and everything like that. Now, granted, that actually caused some of the problems we'd seen in the second edition of the, when I show up to play my game, I have to bring 15 books or whatever along, <laughs> yeah. uh, which you didn't want to do. But like I said, every edition is trying to solve problems and it introduces new problems for the next generation. Uh, I think it is very important to look at the whole splintering audience thing when you talk about something like advanced or alternate campaign settings or anything like that. Wizards, as the owner of D&D, really wants to be like, this is you know, this is the way. This is this is the path of D&D. And they are very happy to have people publishing stuff alongside of that. Because if they only come out with, say, I don't know, I'm going to make up a number, four books a year or something, and they can guarantee that you know 80% of their audience buys every one of those books, mm-hmm. then that's great for them. And if there are hundreds of other books that are being bought, that drives the sales of those books. Mm-hmm. It's not... Competition. I mean, I mean, you look back. We, we were talking about the different, uh, you know, how companies and everything. Look back in the eighties. There were lots of mm-hmm. companies, and the success of TSR helped drive the success of Chaosium and you know GDW and all these other games because you know they were the biggest uh, biggest boat in the harbor, and you know you all know the saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. 
So the thing is, though, in, in business, at least in my experience, right, in business, and you said it, how do you how do you win with a market dominator? Okay, so you're TSR, you're a market dominator. You, um, what's the bet? Seventy percent market share before the AGL OGL crisis? Seventy five percent? Easily, yeah. It's got to be. It's got to be. It's got to be. I would say it's got to be seventy right now. Of course, how do you define that market? It could be much less if you define it in other ways, right? And then you've got by de facto. You've got billions of, excuse me, millions of creators, literally millions. It probably is in the million, okay? It's certainly hundreds of thousands of creators mm-hmm. who are de facto endorsing your product, okay? So how do you beat them, right? Well, you make, if you're Pathfinder, a more crunchier, more interesting system, right? Which maybe will deal more to players, right? That kind of thing, right? And they, they had a great success with that, right? They, they did. And, and that's why for me, and what you said about niching, right, is, is a is a, a pretty important thought process. Because when you say splintering, I see niches, right, as a marketing person. That's I don't see splintering, right? I, I see it I see it as risk, right? Because if you blow it with Dark Sun, right? If you blow it, which was great, by the way, right? We all looked at it and thought it was fantastic, but it was it was not well adopted. It was not I, I don't know how much it lost them, but it lost them a lot of money. And and so so for me the mistake, obviously, they made with OGL, which we all know was very clear, was they alienated huge numbers of endorsers. Mm-hmm. And what I said in a couple of videos that I did, which everybody has to keep in mind in this world today, in my day, in the old days in the advertising business and marketing business, it was two pillars, advertising and public relations, mm-hmm. television, radio, traditional stuff, print media, those kinds of things, billboards, all that kind of stuff. And then you were out there, public relations. Um, influencer marketing was basically trying to have your product placed in a TV show or something. I mean, that's about what, or, or you'd have one spokesperson from some Hollywood person speaking about you. Today, I think it is the most important, most powerful pillar. Mm-hmm. It is the influencer pillar. You know, the, the streamers. The streamers. Mm-hmm. You and me, right? You, right? A, a thousand people, okay? The OGL crisis. We got a little company called Gooey Cube. Little company called Gooey Cube. We probably have a couple thousand friends and maybe 500 to 1,000 fans, right? Guess what? I talked to all of them. Mm-hmm. And they were all mad. And they're all like, they're not going to hurt my friend Gooey Cube, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. They're not going to hurt my friend Gooey Cube. I'm going to do something about that. And that, man, that is power. Really and is. you yeah. need to see it as a business all from now on. It needs to be your first priority, not your last priority. Forget TV. I mean, goodness gracious. Anyway, sorry. So, so I think I think I think <laughs> I think one of the things from our vantage point, for, as producers, as creators, um, and I know you guys covered this in an earlier cast, um, uh, is that the OGL crisis, but for us, was a crisis. It was potentially debilitating for a number of businesses. Um, I had creators down with me in Orlando at the time this was happening, and they were on the phone the entire time thinking, this is it. This is the end of our business. We're going to have to close up shop. And they're like major third-party publishers, right? We were Um, right there. Yeah. And and so this all happened, and and people were canceling their D&D Beyond accounts, and and then Wizards turned a corner and decided that, uh, you know, this was a, a, there was a different way we can approach this. Now, all of that being said, just looking at the they got beat to the floor. They got beat. They got beat to the floor to make that turn. No, (laughs) No, so as you say, the influencer has a has a new power in this environment, and and that's wonderful. That is the community speaking with a voice. And our view of this is that we won. We roll a critical hit. We really we turn the tide. David versus Goliath. All of that kind of stuff. But I'd still like to point out that Amazon ratings, as per today, still hold the player's handbook. As number one in puzzle and games references. Oh, yeah. No number six in all reference books. Uh, and it's number 115 in all books. Yeah, they, they, they books. didn't lose 50% of their market they, share over this, yeah. but they might have lost 10, 20% of their best buyers. Well, yeah, right? So, I, <laughs> let's be fair, too. That in the, the, with the, uh, actually, uh, did you, were you going to say something there? Uh, I was going to uh, a completely different question. Gotcha. So if you want to finish up your thought, yeah, I thought it was Yeah, really quick. So at the, I think with the OGL, that it was, those numbers stayed the way that they did because Wizards didn't gain, uh, retain the ground that they had. They lost the ground that they had instead. It wasn't just, okay, well, bygones be bygones. Sorry, may I call, but you guys can have the OGL back. It was, like, it was uh, crisis control 
what do we do? The three steps forward we were trying to get, you know what, we'll back up five steps instead in order to let you know that we really actually are super, super sorry. And I think that's why they were able to retain some of the market share. And I think there's probably not even enough time yet to really see the full effects of what the OGL crisis actually did to the market. Um, at least uh, with the movie, the, the the movie was a really, I know that was probably a big, a big point. Just making sure. Paramount was calling them on the phone. I'm sure. What are you doing right yeah, now? <laughs> over a hundred million dollars in production costs, another $50 yeah. million dollars in advertising. And like, like, that was a massive investment that wasn't just Hasbro, that there were other entities that were being affected by it. And I'm sure that there were very hot calls that happened as a result. Yeah. Come back to a slightly different topic, but somebody you mentioned earlier about Mike Merrill's saying who's, who's going to go for the digital future. Sixth edition. Will this be a subscription-based digital model, or are they actually going to have physical books, or will they have physical books, but most of it will be updated and available through the D&D Beyond? How, I mean, I, how digital are we talking? I know we're talking fairly digital. I'm wondering if it's utter and complete. I don't think it's utter and complete because I think there's still a sizable portion of their market that are, you know, been in the hobby for 10, 20, 30, 40 years that they know they can sell books still, right? I think that there will be the core books. There will be a lot of expansions. I think what you'll see, though, is little call microtransactions in the video games we despise them but i think actually the rpg community will get behind them because what they'll be able to do is say hey for this adventure and for this thing we've got a new playable race that come out and it's only for it's only on dnd beyond and it's three bucks and that's yeah. that's the sort of thing where you're going to see a lot i think you're going to see a lot of smaller pieces of content or here's an adventure line that comes out with the dragonlance campaign setting there's a whole adventure path that's only digital on D&D beyond and you can pick up that and there'll be little things like that and i think i think will actually be very popular but i think they're the, already used to it exactly yeah, they're yes. already used to it and they've done it they have um, when they did the one of their i think it was the, the essential skip or the Dragon of Ice Spider-Man, one or the other. Yes. They put one out, and then they put three exclusive mm-hmm. continuing adventures on D D Beyond, and I. It's hard to say how popular those are. I, I, I think, played one of them. Was, I think good. for sixth edi- for sixth edition, it will be. Yeah, you know, you can buy it, buy the book, and you can do all this, and you you can play the pedestrian way. <laughs> <laughs> or you can play in this really cool, shiny, flashy thing, and for three dollars, you can buy the the icon or the the add on to your digital avatar of your flaming sword. I think again, I think Ed brought it up earlier, which was that earlier editions had that gap in that you know uh, the DM, the drummer of the band, mm-hmm. um, has all of the gear and has you, know, you always go to his house because you're not going to rehearse at somebody else's house, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, at least good players bring food. Right. Amen. Exactly. <laughs> Amen. And, and uh, so as uh, my position as health coordinator for the state of Florida, um, uh, my job was to reach out to stores. And um, the stores always had the same story. Every single one of them has the same story. They can't keep the player's handbook on the shelves. It sells out right away. And every discussion that they have with these players picking up the player's handbook for the first time is, where can I find a game? Who's who's dungeon? Who's a dungeon master? Right? Who, who's running a game? How do I play this? Um, and the stores can't answer that question. They can't be that facilitator. Some many of them try, um, but they're not global enough. They don't have a, an outreach program enough to communicate that, to those things. My belief is that sixth edition may or a digital uh, uh, enterprise may provide. Say you buy uh, the new player's handbook. And it gives you the rule bases, the classes that you can play, and everything to, to generate a character. And then the end of the story in this book is go to this URL, set yourself up an account, and now we can connect you with other players and DMs. So, so Thomas, let me ask you questions because I want to ask him. But this, can I ask a question? Is it okay? Can I ask a question of the group? Because I'd be very curious about this because I've been pondering this quite a bit. So I believe one of the resurgences of D&D was not just the system. Okay, I really believe this. Okay, some dynamics happened in the marketplace. A lot of stores began to really expand their footprints 
to enable a lot more gameplay within their stores. Okay, this, this was happening quite a while ago. So they began to expand their footprints to accommodate exactly what you're talking about right there, Thomas. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm getting my question in just a second, but I want to set the stage. So they expanded their footprints, and people had been digitized so hard. Skyrim, World of Warcraft, right? 14 million subscribers on WoW at their peak, I think it was, yeah. something like that, right? Yeah. Okay, so, so all this is happening, right? And all of a sudden, people start looking at a game that brings them back to their humanness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's not about being digitized. It's about sitting around a table and drinking a beer and laugh. Anyway, does that, re- do you think, do you think that they, if they're not careful, cause I'm worried about the community game stores in this too. There's a whole, there's a whole host of things that I worry about financially kind of impacts that could happen. Do you think that, that, does that, is that so, digitization? So that you, well, he was raised. Adventures Link and Magic: The Gathering brought forth the Wizards Play Network, which was their network of stores that you could look up for a local store that was running Wizards that. of the Coast content. And so that was a revelation during that time period, where you could be in a strange city that you've never been before and find a local store that's playing D and D or playing or playing Magic. And then they had identifiers. Now they really. Unfortunately, they didn't really follow through with that. It wasn't well-maintained. Um, it was impossible to keep up. And then they canceled the volunteer organization that was maintaining that data flow, right? Um, so, yes, that would if they could follow through with that sort of situation where the digital environment is a method of reaching out and making those connections, then I think that we could really establish that local game store as a hub of human it could be amazing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Had you had, you had said something there. So, well, just thinking about that question, um, back in the old days, I don't know what it's like now. I haven't worked at Wizards in more than 15 years. Uh, but in order to be a Wizards of the Coast sort of uh, premier store, you know, being a retailer, do that, you had to devote space to demos. Uh, mm-hmm. And they now the thing is, they actually had packets and stuff to help you do that. And they would send you promotional material to help you do these sorts of things. It's interesting to think about a shift to potentially more digital. I don't think, um, well, I don't know. I'm not in their heads, but I don't think it would be a, a wise choice to shift entirely to digital because I think about the game stores in my area. Uh, they all have demo spaces, and many of them run significant events. A lot of them are on board games or card games, but there's always some role playing as well. And uh, that helps drive interest because... Uh, I'm, I'm going to ask a question and I'm going to kind of answer it to let you follow up because I don't want to preempt your question. But do you know the number one reason somebody stops playing D&D or another role-playing game? Yeah. Equal breaks? Kids? It's, beca- it's because their uh, their friends stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, their friends move. Yeah, for whatever reason. And one of the things about the digital format is it makes it easier uh, in some ways for the game to continue Mm-hmm. You know, I have friends who I play regular games with who live on a different coast. Mm-hmm. You know, there we just have to manage the time difference uh, for things like that. And I'm not saying it's a nothing is a is a solution for everyone, uh, but wizards ultimately should want as many people to be able to play the game as many different ways as they possibly can. Uh, and my thought would be a sixth edition would try and enable that. They also, conversely, want you to be able to spend money on the game. because, And we should all be happy about that because if they're spending money on a Wizards game, they're probably spending money on other games. Yes. And uh, one of the things I remember from working in a game store when I was in graduate school was the, the head of the game store, the owner of the game store was actually the head of the business school at the graduate school I was at. I didn't take any of his classes, but he was a very smart guy. And he came up with ways to get all the money from the customer. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a good way. Because you walk into a game store at that time, and you'd be like, oh, I can buy a player's handbook for $15. I can buy a module for $8. I can buy a set of dice for $3. Okay. What else can I do? Oh, look, there's some miniatures. Oh, but it's a, there are these old Parker packs, and they come in a box, and it's like $15. He bought a bunch of those packs, opened them up, Put all the individual ones in like a fishing lure display mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. and priced them. The uh, the fighter is seventy five cents. The cleric is fifty cents. The ochre jelly, which we all know was just a misshapen thing, you know, that <laughs> was, <laughs> a, was a quarter, you know. And 
and things like that. So that that way, he made it possible for the kid who's only got five dollars and wants to come. I mean, when you go into a store, you want to spend money. When I come to a con, I want to buy something in the dealer's room. Mm-hmm. But if I look at it and I say, I have five dollars, and despite all you know, all lies to the contrary, maybe I have enough dice. I can't <laughs> quite afford a module, but oh, look, I could buy three miniatures and that you know, refill my red paint that I've been running out of. Yeah, yeah, Andrew. Yeah, so just, uh, this is a great discussion about um, sort of the online portion of it, and uh, Kim brings up, I wanted to ask almost exactly the same question, because I have not been into D&D and games for years and years and years. I've been doing this for like six years, and I came into this after... 10 years of being over-digitized, playing various MMOs for 10 years uh, through my, like, 20s and early 30s, and then I was in my mid-30s, and I'm like, I want to see real people. How do I do that? I would like real people in my life and to, you know, actually experience the world and go outside sometimes. And that's how I came to D&D. So, and the question really is, like, Wizards has to be building for the future, right? Mm -hmm. And... We know a lot of the future is online, but the question is, do what percentage of the D&D audience actually wants to be online? The pandemic drove everybody online, and virtual weekends that the Wizards ran through, Baldman went through the roof, and are now coming crashing down. Yes, and yes. it was the perfect thing. Everybody got online, everybody learned the technology, they set up these events, and now people are like, eh, I'm done with that now. I was thinking since we now have the, 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 the volume, so to speak, meaning the market is now massive compared to it's been any any other time, I also think we will see an economic stratification. I mean, we talk about like, oh, you buy the cheap and, and the simple for people. And we also have the opposite. Now we have luxury consumers in, in the RPG industry, mm-hmm. meaning Wormwood with tables for 15 grand. We have Beadle and Grimm selling stuff for hundreds of dollars. You have yes. dice made out of titanium that cost a grand. <laughs> yeah. Stuff like that. Meaning you have... Dwarven Forge Kickstarters that I can't listen to. Exactly. We're starting to have everything from the cheap bargaining version and to, to luxury cons- consumption in the RPG industry. And I think that is also something that I could see that yeah, we can have both a digital and a physical feature. Yes, you yes. have a digital basic that costs a few pennies to or, or bucks to get in, and you can start playing the game. And then you have the luxury collectors' items from Beadle and Grimm or licensed out that cost enormous amount of money for collectors and people who want to play the luxury version of D and D, so to speak. I think I think that that entire luxury environment only came about because. Uh, it is privileged yeah. to uh, be able to have a wide enough audience that a game like 5th edition mm-hmm. came along and said, yeah. everybody can play, mm-hmm. you're all welcome, let's yeah. get, get as many people in there, and now we have the ability to have a luxury environment. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, here at GaryCon, we've got a platinum badge, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And it's $1,000, yep. and they sell out every year. Mm-hmm. And that yep. is amazing to me. I mm-hmm. can't imagine that something like that happening in the early 80s. Exactly. It's just it, because the, the audience wasn't large enough to accommodate mm-hmm. that kind of luxury. Plus, we were all nerds when we were Plus, kids. We yes. grew up and got great jobs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Because now it's been destigmatized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Back in the 80s yeah. and 90s, mm-hmm. people say, hey, so what do you do for fun? movies and TV? Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you didn't tell anybody yeah. that you played these games yeah. Yeah. until you knew them for a little yeah. bit and yeah. was really hopeful that they weren't going to ridicule you when you finally admitted <laughs> exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah, I, I want to underscore some of those things because I think there's a uh, we come to these conventions and we all talk about it and we're all inside inside baseball and I think we lose the thread on it and I'm operating meat space where I work at a public library and we're like gathering people up to play and then I do worry about uh, splintering because when people say I want to play D&D they all show up and then they all have different expectations about what that's going to look like it's a problem Mm -hmm. my brother just started a new game with people he met at at AA so and that that meat space Conversations will directly result in the purchase of four of those players, four new players' handbooks, mm-hmm. which is, w- that wouldn't have happened. And these are people that I think a thing that's going on also is that people know about D and D from other stuff, not just the movie. They're talking about it on Big Bang Theory. They they know it from Stranger Things. These are people they don't know what Dark Sun is. They don't know what Forgotten Realms is. They don't know what Five E is. 
or three E is. They just know what the D and D is a thing right. they saw on Stranger Things. They certainly don't know what OGL stands for. And, I, and those are the people yeah. that I want to. Yeah, which is on. which is why I I think that they didn't lose so much market share on Amazon <coughs> because the vast majority of players mm-hmm. had no clue there was an OGL issue. Right. No, yeah. That's they correct. didn't know. Yeah. So I run I run all learn to play uh, tables. Uh, at a convention that's next weekend in Orlando, uh, it's a fandom convention. Uh, last year, they they netted around a half a million people uh, for the entire convention. And all I have to do is wear my D and D shirt and walk out in the hall and say Dungeons and Dragons, and I will collect tables <laughs> and tables of people dressed in costumes, and they'll come and sit down and they will play for two hours. And they will, um, and I had a woman last year come to me, a uh, mother of four who sat down at the table and she came to me and she said, I just bought a set of dice. And I said, good for you, good for you. <laughs> she came back the next day to play at another learn to play table and she came to me and she said, I just bought more dice. And I said, <laughs> I said listen, it's a marathon, not a sprint. <laughs> you got to pace yourself. There will always be more dice. If you um, wear it, they will come. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But it is but it is a lifestyle brand. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's no question. Yeah. 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 You know, I was going to say that critical role is, you know, I feel has been one of the platforms that yeah. has really kind of set the bar really high for a lot of people that are new to the game. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they've watched the show, they, you know, they've become fans of the show, and then they want to play a game and get into it. And if they're you know, either a new dungeon master, like they can't compete <laughs> with that level, or if they're a new player, their expectation of what the DM is going to do, this you know, performative, theatrical level, you know, and then they don't get that necessarily. And there's, so there's like this huge discrepancy of that. There's, so. It's not just on the DM side too. And, and that's, I think that's the big thing that wizards and all of us need to kind of figure out tactically how we're going to do. Because <laughs> on the GM side, you have Matt Mercer and, you know, the players look to that. But on the player side, if you watch Critical Role, especially the, the, the campaigns that are more recent and all that, the players aren't there flipping through a book. Mm-hmm. They're not there like it's consulting charts. They're not it's, doing it's that. A show. It's yeah. right. Game. But yeah. as a player and as a consumer, if that's your first access point, oh, which it yeah, is for absolutely. millions of people, when you sit down at the table, your expectation is not, I need to have a book in front of me. I need to be referencing this. Or I'm going to have to be right. referencing they're this role. Voice what is the condition? They're, you know, they're just, they're expecting that storytelling <laughs> engine to be the experience. Mm-hmm. I really think that. We, we, were just, back. <laughs> we were just talking at the booth to a couple of folks, and they're like, what are the narrative systems or what are the narrative games that you have here? I'm like, well, you know, I can talk to you about Dune, and I can talk, I mean, any game can be narrative, but at the end of the day, if there's like a community that's really like focused on narrative right now and growing, it's 5e. Like, all these others, like, I'll be really excited to tell you, this is a cool system over here. All oh, this system over here is crunchy. This one does some really neat things. Oh, this is a cool IP. But if there's a system that the community just, like, wants to tell stories, and you're not going super indie, it's probably 5th edition. And I think if the future of 5e doesn't include realizing that not just GMs, but players want to be part of the storytelling experience, you're going to be in for a rough ride because that's what they're that's their in route. It's Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. It's the movie. It's the it's the um, it's everything. To, to respond to what you just said, my response is: if you want a Matt Mercer experience from me, then you better give me a Vox Machina experience from you <laughs> <laughs> because it's not yeah. it's not I'm not I'm not the monkey that you're going to make dance. This is a two way street, and if you haven't figured that out watching the show, you're not watching the show very well. Yeah, and that's part of the problem. And with, with as far as that goes, yeah. Go ahead, go. Really quickly, going back to what you were talking about earlier about niches and what you were saying about like maybe there's the people coming in want a more narrative um, experience, um, but we want D&D to stay large um, because it's an on-ramp. I look at D&D today and I look at what Settlers of Catan did for board gaming in yeah, America, right, and yeah. I just look at the potential we could have as a community, D&D and all the other systems, and how does... D&D make sure that it's still the on-ramp, that it's still bringing in the new players and, and in tune with the psyche of those players. Because if we go overly crunchy, and I love spreadsheets, but I know that's not going to bring in the mass people who are looking for a narrative experience. So how do we balance that as we move forward? I think I think what Kim uh, or Ed may have made a, a good response to earlier was that um, generationally, it's a great idea to reevaluate 
our state uh, mm-hmm. uh, th- that Wizards is doing is to reevaluate their situation and ensure that the that the rule systems and the narratives that they're producing are in line with what their audience expects. Mm-hmm. So the one D and D playtest is, uh, in my opinion, a wonderful example of how that outreach. <coughs> is producing feedback and they're being able to ingest that and adjust their expectations for, uh, for publishing. And, um, the, uh, one thing that, uh, fifth edition and now this one D and D has approached that prior editions of D and D didn't approach at all is, uh, diversity and inclusion. And that, uh, people now are able to see themselves in this world regardless of where you are on whatever spectrum. Um, and uh, we are now, it's its a pragmatic business solution from a money standpoint to include everyone in your yeah. books and in your narrative. And now we've got 5th edition and now 1D&D talking about, let's ensure that we've got images and, mm-hmm. and narratives and storylines that include everyone. And now you've just naturally got a bigger audience. Yeah. yeah. Back in the day, that was the assumption yes. that, it, that it includes everyone. Yeah. But now it's like, no, we include everyone. We say it and, and we're proud of saying that. Right. We're going to have to close it down. Uh, Anna, you have just one a one? quick question. Remark is that now we are all, most of us here are middle aged. That means I'm the only woman because the, that generation that was like maybe 10% women. Mm-hmm. If we were 20 something, then newbies, that will be almost half of us. So in that sense, I, and I'm so lovely to see many of you have allied sponsor yes. and, and stuff, inclusive little extra badges or, or attachment to your badges, meaning that is the, the DD and role playing game community have been much more inclusive across the world and in various other spectrum. I think that's wonderful. Well, honestly, yeah. you know, if, mm-hmm. I, I would say most of, probably all of us in this room yeah. just support this as mm-hmm. a philosophy, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. But God, how stupid to do it as a business decision, even if you don't support exactly. it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 Even if you're just cynical. But, you know, but it is. You're exactly mm-hmm. right. It's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful because yeah. so, thank you, you. Think, you think about the kids, mm-hmm. the kids who might have been marginalized yeah. because mm-hmm. of whatever, whatever. Right, whatever. Yeah. Right, and we, yeah, it's the nerd community. Well, right. I think what you were saying, right? <laughs> we didn't want to admit we played maybe D and D unless you knew yeah. the other person played exactly. D and D. So we were the ones who weren't we included. Were, yeah, we, yeah, were, yeah, we, we were the nerds. <laughs> Glasses and math, <laughs> right. and we were the marginalized. We need to remember that now yeah. as we bring more yeah. people yeah. into yeah. these yes, games. Absolutely. Were always a safe haven. Yes, right. Exactly. For all of us. Yep. So mm-hmm. they're a safe haven for. For anyone. And then we yeah. finally got Magic the Gathering players that we could pick on. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good round. That's a good round. Well, hey, thank you, everybody, yes, for, for, for hanging out. It's been wonderful. Um, thank you for a really good Gary Con. It's great to hang out for, with all of you for, for a weekend. Uh, one of the best cons of the year, for yes. sure. Um, if you're listening to this, hopefully this gave you a little bit of a taste of some of the great people and some of the great conversations. This is not the one cool moment at the con. This is this is the capstone in piece of a really great weekend, mm-hmm. and um, you should come back next year and, and be a part of it yourself. Uh, I guess we'll that'll do it for this time, and we'll see you all next week. Play great games, everybody. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Awesome.